0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. We are in our family emphasis series. We began last week at Mother's Day. We'll go through Father's Day. It's another five weeks of messages. Last week we spoke to fathers. We spoke to husbands. This week we speak to mothers and we speak to wives. Then we'll speak to children and siblings. And we'll speak to youth, young adults. And we'll speak to parents again. Warnings. Warnings to families. Warnings to parents. Warnings to children. Examples from Old Testament, Scripture. And the title of this sermon, as it relates to mothers, is Raising Your Children. Raising Your Children. Already, I've gone beyond political correctness. Already, I'm into an avenue that many people would not like. Those of you who have done any looking into the distinctives of Legacy Baptist Church, which I believe everyone in here is probably in that category, know that we believe very strongly that the father is the head of the household. We believe very strongly in a father-led home. Now, there are certain circumstances where that can't happen. Uh, There are widows um, that we interact with here in Buffalo who do not have the privilege of um, having their husband anymore. And um, there is is no longer that father-husband in the home. and, And certainly we would not... Um, by any means um, deem them to be inferior or unable to do what God has asked them to do. Um, The mother has an extra responsibility upon her and the church has an extra responsibility upon themselves um, to help with those children um, that maybe some men would step up and be that fatherly figure for those children that they still do need. However, as a rule, we recognize the father is to be the head of the home. This is how God has ordained it. The father is ultimately responsible to raise his children. The scriptures speak to this numerous time, calling upon fathers to guide their children, to correct their children. And as we spoke to fathers last week, I called you the rudder of your home. That you may not be the biggest part of your home. You may be outnumbered quite heavily in your home. But even if you're, even as a a small portion of your home, you are yet still the portion that is most important to the direction that your home goes. You are the rudder that guides your home. There is little doubt, however, that mothers are an essential element of the family, particularly as it relates to children. We speak of this role as one that's delegated to the right wife. That the father is ultimately responsible for raising his children and yet... Quite regularly and naturally the father has delegated this responsibility to the wife so that in a day-in, day-out functioning capacity, it is regularly the mother that is doing much of the raising, the teaching, those sorts of things. And it varies based upon the home and the circumstance. I personally have delegated the daily responsibilities of my daughters to my wife She's the one that handles the majority of the feeding of them and the clothing of them and those sorts of things. And when I'm around, I'm happy to help. But I have asked her, if I'm in the home and you need to discipline the girls, I would ask you to let me do it. My wife, as most mothers, does not particularly enjoy the role of disciplining her children. She does not enjoy having to give her daughters spankings, those sorts of things. And you know, I've observed something else as well. Not only does my wife not enjoy it, but she's not as good at it. My wife is is a tender soul and my daughters are adorable little things. Maybe not when they're uh, getting themselves into trouble. But I found that emotionally speaking, my wife does not have the capacity to discipline our children that I have. The ability to distance herself from her emotions so that it's not just a little swat, but it's actually a legitimate, discipline situation um, is easier when it's coming from the Father. Now, that's not always able to happen. Sometimes I'm out of the house. Sometimes I'm busy and my wife needs to take upon herself that role and she does so admirably. But I've asked her to allow me to take care of that as often as possible. It sets up proper barriers. I think it has the proper um, structure in the home. It keeps things where they ought to be. Now, husbands in this room or wives who have husbands that aren't here, your husbands may do it a little bit differently. That's fine. But what we must understand is that mothers do assume upon themselves uh, quite an active role in the raising of children. As a matter of fact, I don't feel like I'm going out on a limb to say that in many ways the mother probably does more of the actual physical raising of the children than the father does in many of our homes. The concept of the wife being the one who is responsible for the spiritual and physical growth of a child is foreign to Scripture. However, the concept of the wife being the one who actually performs many of these duties as given to her by her husband is so regular in Scripture that it's almost implicit. You don't even see a whole lot of commands for the mother to be a mother because a mother is a mother and it's what she does. It's what's expected. It's what's in fact built into her. And so this morning as I speak to you of raising your children, there's not a lot of scripture that we can go to necessarily because it's expected that you as a mother would take upon yourself that role of raising your children, caring for your children, loving your children, being what you ought to be for your children. However, In Titus chapter 2, we see some tremendous insights into how you are supposed to be as a mother. It's not so much giving you the ins and outs, recommendations as to how to discipline your children and how to raise them properly or any of those sorts of things, but rather how to be the mother that you ought to be on a more principled level. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's do so. We'll begin in Titus chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 5. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise that they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, Chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. As always, I'll give you context before we jump into the actual passage in verses 4 and 5. Titus chapter 2, Paul is exhorting the minister Timothy to speak concerning things which become sound doctrine. You see there the Greek word literally means that which is suitable that which is proper or that which is comely in regard to sound doctrine. It's interesting, as we look immediately, Paul's definition of sound doctrine in this passage is not inherently related to what we would call theology as much as it is more to a practical level of speaking. In this age in the church, there are many Christians who are looking for teaching, but they dislike it when a pastor carries that teaching over into application. They say, Pastor, that's fine. You tell me what the Bible has to say, but don't you dare tell me how to live my life. That's standards. That's that's between me and God. Well, here Paul is teaching, is exhorting Titus to teach not just sound doctrine, but to teach those elements of the Christian life that flow out of sound doctrine. Those things which become sound doctrine. Those things which are properly aligned with sound doctrine. And so this is the the elements that you stack on top of sound doctrine. You live out sound doctrine in your lives. You recognize who God is, who you are in light of who God is, what the Bible has to say, and then you stack upon it the expectations that God would place upon you because of what the Bible has to say. This is similar to what we did in the Lawful But Not Expedient series. We took sound doctrine and we layered upon that the expectations about how we should live in regard to sound doctrine. And it's not unbiblical for pastors to do that. As a matter of fact, Paul commanded Timothy to do that. To speak that which became sound doctrine. Which was suitable unto sound doctrine. To give practical advice that aligns itself with sound doctrine. And two main categories are focused upon in these eight verses speaking to various people in the church. Paul focused upon the aged and he focused upon the young. Now this is a pretty vague breakdown that would be dangerous for me to attempt to quantify this morning. What is aged and what is young? When does young stop and aged begin? Could you see the scene with me? Could you see the scene in our church if we had the high school graduation ceremony where we reward those and we celebrate with those that finally went from high school to college and maybe we'd have a kindergarten one where we've got all the kindergartners and they're moving on to the next grade. And then we have a young to aged ceremony where we pull all the men and ladies up, right? And we say, congratulations, you're going from young to aged today. Now, that wouldn't go over very well, particularly with the ladies in our group, would it? No, it wouldn't. Your pastor would not be in good shape. So, I'm not going to attempt to quantify what is young and what is aged this morning. I'm not going to tell you, mothers, if you're a young lady or if you are an aged woman this morning. However, I will say this. What we see in the transition between the young and the aged, is a transition from a caring role, a nurturing role, to more of a teaching and exemplary role. Whereas the aged women would be more of an example. They would be expected to be the teacher, to teach the young women to get their heads on straight. And the young women were to be more in that, that season of life for nurturing. More in the season of life where they are raising a family more in the season of life where um, they are still um, caring for those at home. And so, um, there's not really a definitive breakdown in the Scriptures. And yet, we can see, based upon the role, you might be able to discern a little bit of where you might fall into these categories this morning. In verses 2 and 3, Paul focuses in on the aged men and the aged women. And... These are meant to be, as I, as I already mentioned, the mentors. Those who, through time and experience, are expected to be stable in their Christian lives and are expected to be able to reflect godliness. So he says in verse 2, the aged men that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. These men are intended to be strong and accurate reflections of stability and faithfulness in their walk with the Lord. They may not have the energy they once had. They may not be as sharp as they once were, but they, you, they can tell you how to know God. They've got a stability in their relationship with the Lord. I was talking this morning in Sunday school a little bit about tithe and telling the folks how over the years my understanding as well as the way that I relate to giving in the church has changed. And as I look back upon how it has changed and how it is still changing, I see myself transitioning from more of that zealous, um, kind of that zeal without knowledge role to a balanced understanding and a desire to relay it in such a way that others can learn balance as well. Now, I am by no means um, transitioning into the aged, Um, or at least if I tried to say so, I'd get a lot of eyes rolling around. Um, my birthday's coming up soon, and after this next birthday, I will still not be 30 years old. Um, so I'm, I'm getting there, but I'm not quite there yet. Although I might sound like I'm in my 60s today, it's not the case. Um, not quite. So, the aged men are supposed to be sound, healthy, healthy, uncorrupt, whole, pure. That's what that word means. They know God. They know what it is. They've experienced what it is to have faith in God. They've experienced what it is to go through trials and temptations. And they can be the anchor that helps the young people to maintain some stability in the midst of their zeal and desire to push forward and desire to do things and maybe desire to push the boundaries. And they just need some, some old guy in the background saying, you know what, you need to slow down a bit, son. The aged women likewise, Paul says in verse 3. Being in behaviors, becometh holiness. There's that word becometh again. It's the same word we saw in, in verse 1. That is suitable or comely unto reverence. Unto holiness. This word holiness is used only this one time in the entire Bible. You will not see this same word for holiness in the Greek used anywhere else in the Bible. It... Um, is similar to the word that um, in the Greek is the word temple. It's actually a derivative of that word. So the temple was a place that was holy. It was consecrated unto the Lord. It was a place where people came to worship. It was a place that was special. It was a place that was set apart. And this word here is actually kind of an adjectival form of that idea of being a temple. That she is to be one who is reverent. That she is to be one who is set apart. That, that people are to look at her and they're supposed to see a dignity, a comeliness about her. They're supposed to see a godliness in her, And that is the role of the aged woman as she takes on a role as a mentor, as she takes on a role as a guide to the younger women, helping the younger women do what they need to do, helping the young, younger women be what they need to be, helping the younger women have a direction that they ought to have. They should be spiritually mature and reverent toward the commands and the expectations of God. It goes on in verse 13. Three, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. They're supposed to be beyond the gossip. They're supposed to be beyond those elements of intemperance. They're supposed to be teachers of good things. They're supposed to be that anchor. The next two verses focus upon what those good things are that the aged woman is supposed to teach. She's supposed to be a teacher of good things, teaching the young women And what are these good things that she is supposed to teach? Well, that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And mothers in this room, those of you that are still in the season of your lives, where you are raising children, where you are um, caring for a family, this is for you. This is for you. And as we walk through each of these attributes, mothers, you should ask yourself, where are you successful... Where are you exemplifying what a, what a mother is supposed to be? And where do you need work? Where do you need to shore up? Now, um, and let me just say this as well. If, if your kids are raised and gone, don't tune out this morning. Don't say, okay, I've done my mother bit. Because if you are to be one of these women who is to teach the next generation, then you need to know what to teach them. And what you're going to hear this morning is what you ought to be teaching them. Maybe you made mistakes and you don't feel qualified. Well, you know what? There's a lot of people who have made mistakes and don't feel qualified to say things about the Word of God. But if we're sticking to the Word of God, then you can teach just as much through your bad example as you can teach from a good example. You can say, I did this wrong, so let me tell you how to do it right. Because the Word of God is truth. And if you're giving the truth, even if you were not a good example of the truth in your years growing up, you can still express it. So, let's dig in. Verse 4. That they may teach the young women to be sober. This word here is literally of sound mind or self-controlled. We'll see this better as we walk through the other commands, but this is actually, it's an overarching idea that really characterizes everything that the young woman is supposed to be, everything that the mother is supposed to be. She is supposed to be a sober or a sober-minded woman. This concept of sobriety is foundational to all of the other points that we'll see this morning. And so, the first of these sobriety points that we see, found in verse 4, is to love their husbands and to love their children. This next concept is very unique in the Greek text. In the English, we have these phrases, to love their husbands, to love their children. And as I read this phrase, being um, a guy who knows Greek, but also just understanding English grammar, I would expect to see those two as verbs. Love their husbands. Love their children. These are verbs in our King James Uh, English. These are verbs that we're seeing here. And yet they're not, or they're verbals at least, but they're not verbs in the Greek. They're adjectives. If you know anything about English grammar, what you'll realize then is that if this is an adjective, then it is renaming or describing a noun. And what that means is that these are not intended to be actions that the mother is doing. These are intended to be characteristics of the mother herself. She is not just supposed to be a person who does the action of loving her husband. She is not, just, she's not supposed to be a person who just does the action of loving her children as if she flips it on and flips it off. It is supposed to characterize the very fiber of who she is. She is supposed to be defined by her love for her husband and her love for her children. It is supposed to be the very essence of who she is as a woman that she loves her husband and she loves her children. In the most literal sense, Paul is commanding these women to be husband lovers and children lovers. Not just to do the action of loving her husband and children. And I want to be careful not to read too much into this, read too much into the difference here, but I think there is a real difference. I think Paul is using this manner of grammar to, dis- to, um, to describe women for a, a very particular reason, to describe mothers for a very particular reason. See, doing something is very different than being something, isn't it? You can do something without necessarily being defined by it. This morning, Tim Zakes led music. We would say Tim Zakes led music this morning, but we would not say Tim Zakes is a music leader. He is not defined by that role. That is not what he does. In a few months, I'm going to be going to Michigan for a week uh, as I uh, have a wedding that I'm officiating and both Ed and Tim are going to be preaching for us. Now, they are going to get behind this pulpit. They are going to um, open their Bibles. They are going to expound the Word of God. They are going to preach. They are going to do the act of preaching, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are preachers by definition, does it? They don't have that call upon their lives as of yet. They have not been led by God to... um, enter into that calling as a preacher, and so they are preaching, but they are not what we would call pastors or preachers. And so there is a difference between doing something and being something. And I think that Paul is indeed trying to highlight the difference here. Mothers, you're not just supposed to do this mother thing. Motherhood is not intended to be a part of your responsibility or a back burner responsibility or a second fiddle responsibility. You are not supposed to just do motherhood. You are supposed to be motherhood. It is what you have been made to do. It is what you have been designated by God to do. If you are married, your entire life should be defined by what it means to be a wife and a mother. We'll talk about the implications of this statement as we get to our application. But that's, I believe, what Paul is saying here. That you are indeed intended to be defined by your role as a wife and a mother if you have taken upon yourself the responsibility of marriage and children. Verse 5, as we continue. Paul says, To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, Obedient to their own husbands. Let's talk about these first two. Discreet and chaste. The word discreet here is the adjective form of the same word that we saw in verse 4. Sober. It's actually the same word. To be sober. So, this is one of the reasons why I believe sober is an overriding emphasis here that the aged women are to teach the young women to be sober, self-controlled in their mind. But it's also an adjective that's supposed to describe how they are, or what they are. Mothers, God intends for you to be a woman characterized by control of your body, emotion, and will. You are intended by God to offer your children the stability and consistency of life and action reflected in your life and action. Your children should see a woman who is under control of her emotions who is under control of her spending habits, who is under control of her indulgences, etc. Certainly your life and action should manifest a greater maturity than your children. You know, it's a great tragedy today that there are many children who are forced to play the role of the parent for their parents. They have to be the rock. They have to be the stability. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek and I don't say that trying to be funny because it's not. But we are in a society who... A society that's not encouraging adults to grow up. And what it has done is it has brought about circumstances whereby there are many mothers who haven't yet grown up. And the biblical expectation upon mothers is mothers, you're supposed to be grown-ups. You're supposed to be that source of stability for your children, that source of leadership for your children, that source of love for your children, that source of sober-mindedness for your children so that your children don't grow up thinking adults are just grown-up children. They see you as an adult. You do adult things. You act in an adult way. They don't have to correct you. They don't have to raise you. We ought to be Parents, we ought to be parents. Mothers, you ought to be sober-minded. You ought to be discreet. Mothers, you should be the kind of woman that... sets the example. You should not be the kind of woman where your children need to clean up your messes, need to carry your emotional baggage. Your children should never be placed in a position where they feel embarrassed over your poor behavior in public. You should be an example to them. Paul tells Timothy in this passage that sound doctrines dictates that mothers be discreet, sober. Also, chaste. Mothers ought to be characterized by purity. This purity should certainly be reflected in your appearance but also in your actions and in your words. Your children should see you as a woman with the highest regard for personal testimony. They shouldn't see you as a vulgar woman or a profane woman. They shouldn't see a woman that acts one way but then lets her hair down and all of a sudden she gets vulgar or profane. They should see you as a woman who is chaste, who is pure. An example of one who is unspoiled by the world. You ought to be the kind of woman that your children can respect morally. You know, your children are going to grow up and make a lot of decisions. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. But by God's grace, you should not be the kind of woman that adds any support to any decision your child is making that is unbiblical. No child should ever be making a decision, and feel like they have the right to do so. An unbiblical decision, and feel like they have the right to do so because they saw mom doing it. Dads, you too. But that's the idea—that you should not be the kind of woman that is an example. Is a poor example. You should be a right example to your children. Verse five. The next word: keepers at home. There's a Greek manuscript controversy over this word in our Bibles. Many of you know that the Greek text that is under, that is undergirding the King James Version is an, actually a, a different Greek text than the one that undergirds every other translation of the Bible with the exception of the New King James in English. So when you're reading discrepancies in these Bible versions. Sometimes it's just translation, but oftentimes it's because the Greek text is actually different that the King James used as opposed to the one that the other versions used. And we at Legacy Baptist Church use the King James Version not inherently because we believe that this is a preeminent English translation and we love the fact that they use archaic words that we have to look up in our dictionaries. The reason why we use the King James Version is because we believe the Greek text behind it is a text that is far more pure than the Greek text that's being used in the rest of church society today. That text, we believe, has been touched by humanism, has been touched by corruption, and without a doubt, history bears out, it's been touched by Roman Catholic theology. And so there is, that's where the controversy lies. And this is one of the words that's changed in the Greek text underlying other versions of the Bible. In our King James Version, the Greek word literally means to be one who stays home. To be a stayer at home. There's really no way around the word that she is to be a keeper at home. That she is to keep her house. However, in the other Greek manuscript, the word is changed to one who works at home. So from a homestayer or a stayer at home to a worker at home is literally the difference. Stayer at home is the Greek word in the King James. Worker at home is the Greek word in the other translations. It may be translated various ways in various different translations, but that's what the Greek word means underlying it. Now, this subtle change does make a difference. It makes a difference between the woman who simply keeps her home up with necessary chores and the woman who is expected to actually make her household her priority. To make it her entire priority. Culturally speaking, this word does then have some implications. If I were to preach this message to a group of people that were using another version of the Bible, and there were to be some Greek scholars, and they were to go back and they were to look, all of a sudden they'd say, well, no, 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 pastor, you're wrong. This is not supposed to be a woman that's defined by staying at home. This is supposed to be a woman that works at home, that, that keeps up her her, the expectations of our household. And that culturally is far more acceptable than what the King James is telling us to do. Because the King James is telling us that if a woman is doing what she ought to do, that what these older women are intended to teach the younger women to be is a woman who is a stayer at home. Is one who makes for the years wherein her household is, needs her, she makes the household her priority. This means that the duties of the home should override any other ambition in her life. She's intended by God to devote her time and her efforts to her home and to her children. Now, when we get to our application, again, we'll consider this. I am not one inherently that believes that there's no circumstances where a woman can work out, uh, cannot work outside the home. I don't believe that. I believe that there are times where a woman certainly can work outside the home. We're going to talk about that as we get to our application. And I personally believe that we can apply this without twisting or manipulating the scriptures as well. We'll get there. Let's continue in verse 5. Keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. I'm sorry I didn't highlight those, but the first Greek word there is good. The second one, as you can see. And the second one is the word obedient that um, is up there. These are the final two characteristics that are taught here. To be good and to be obedient. In relation to motherhood, these characteristics are teaching tools for the children. You've all known people who have been, simply put, characterized by goodness. They're kind people. They're compassionate people. They ask you how you're doing. They remember you when you say you have a prayer request. They're doers of good things. They are thinkers of good. They're speakers of good. This word in the Greek is simply good. Mothers, you're supposed to be good. You're supposed to be that kind of a person. You're supposed to be the person that when your children think of you, they just think she is a good woman. That's a good woman. Where a husband just says, you know what, she's a good woman. It's the same word that's used in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, to command women to be subject to their own husbands, to be good women, it's the same idea that we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, as Peter teaches about the importance of a woman's testimony that she would be a, a, a good woman, a subject woman as well. All throughout scriptures, the examples are clear. Fathers, husbands are to be the head of the home, and the wife, the mother, is to be that good subject woman, subject to her own Husband, And notice there, it does say to her own husband. That's a good translation. It doesn't just mean subject to husbands. Women, you're not subject to other husbands in the church. You're subject to your own husband. Notice the reason as we finish up verse 5. The last phrase there, that the word of God be not blasphemed. The point of it all, Why teach young mothers to be this way? Well, because when a woman reflects these characteristics, she is an honorable reflection of sound doctrine. And by being an upright woman herself, the Word of God is exalted through her. Mother, you want to exalt the Word of God by being a mother? Be this kind of mother. Be the kind of mother who is sober, who is discreet, chaste, Keep her at home, who loves her husband, who loves her children, who is obedient to her own husband. Be that kind of woman and you will magnify the Word of God. You don't have to have a Sunday school class that you teach to magnify the Word of God. You don't have to be a song leader to magnify the Word of God. You can magnify the Word of God according to the testimony of the Word of God by being a good mother and a good wife. So let's apply this morning. Mothers, be defined by your love and your loyalty to home and family. Be defined by your love and your loyalty to home and family. When we were studying 1 Corinthians 7, we read very clearly the Apostle Paul's words that it is not wrong for women to remain unmarried. As a matter of fact, Paul exhorted every believer in Corinth due to the particular circumstances in that church to remain unmarried if they could at all help it. That included women. He exhorted both the women and the men to remain unmarried. And I made particular mention of the fact that women, generally speaking, particularly in conservative Christian culture, have a very heavy emphasis placed upon them to get married. And though we mentioned that a woman should not feel obligated to this, that women in this room, you should not feel obligated to get married. And that there are other ways that you can serve the Lord outside of the married state. I also mentioned this, that women, if you decide to get married, and you decide to have a family, the moment you say, I do, your entire priority in your spiritual life, your entire priority as far as the ways in which you serve the Lord and you glorify God is now filtered through your husband. Until that point that you get married, you can go on the mission field, you can serve the Lord, you can do other things for the Lord, and that's wonderful. But when you get married, your priority shifts entirely to your husband and family. That's what the Word of God says. So I'm not telling women here today that you can't work. That you have no place outside the home. Unmarried women certainly work. Particularly in our society, it allows you to do so. Married women, does that mean you can't work? I I would say not necessarily. But I would say this. If we take the Word of God as it's stated plainly, you do a disservice to your family and to the Word of God if you are working in the years where you're supposed to be raising your children. If you are not devoting your time and your energies to raising your children and keeping your house in those years where your children are young, in those years where your children need to be physically raised, I believe you are doing a disservice to the commands of the Word of God as well as to your family and i believe that because i believe that's exactly what first uh, titus chapter 2 is telling us that the mother and the wife is intended to be a keeper at home is intended to be the kind of woman who is not just one who exercises love toward her husband and toward her children but who is defined by her family and the scriptures tell us that in being so you are magnifying the word of god that you are magnifying and glorifying God. The doctrine of radical feminism espouses a concept that women should not be shackled by their families. That she has just as much right as the man to pursue her own ambitions wherever they will take her. This is false. This is a false idea that has not just permeated liberal society either. This has permeated every aspect of our culture, including the church, On the liberal side, radical feminism preaches that a woman who sets aside personal ambition for the sake of her husband and her family is nothing more than a glorified slave who is being willingly imposed upon by the expectations of her society. That's what radical feminism says, that you are making yourself a slave, that you are perpetuating the system, that you are keeping yourself enslaved to a male chauvinistic society that would seek to dominate women. It's false, it's wicked, it's a lie of the devil. The Bible says it very clearly. In the Christian world, radical feminism has taken various deceptive paths. There's still that group of liberal, so-called Christians who um, have the exact same philosophy as radical feminism. But as it comes to where Christianity touches feminism... They start to use the realities of liberation in the Word of God to espouse the concept that women are liberated from authority under men. They object to the fact that a woman would be commanded to subject herself to her husband. They object to the fact that women cannot be preachers or usurp authority over the man in the church as the Scriptures teach. And they object to these because they say the Gospel has made us all equal. There's no male or female. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no uh, races. There's none of that in Christ. We're all the same in Christ. Therefore, we're all equal. And that's typically how Christian feminism finds its way into the church. And oftentimes, along with this argument, it is argued that women have been made an object in culture. And yet, I would defy you to find any other event throughout the course of history that has done more to liberate women than the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I challenge you to name one other religion, even today, or one element of secular society today that elevates women to a position of honor like Christianity does in the midst of their expectations that they would subject themselves to their husband, in the midst of the expectations that women are not to be the ones up here preaching, I defy you to find one culture, one society, or one religion that elevates women to a place of honor like Christianity does. You will not find it. Society preaches equality, but never in American culture have women been treated more like objects for the pleasure of men than in today's society. You look at the cheerleaders on a football field. You look at the rampant amount of pornography. You look at the problems that we've never seen before in our society, such as sexting. You look at the issues surrounding the music industry today and what women wear when they're up there singing. Or the women dancing behind the man who's up there singing. And what we see is that society has done nothing to liberate women Society is giving women this pseudo-liberation element where they can work outside the home and they get the same paycheck and they wear pants and they do all of these things that men do and they get elements of leadership in politics and in the church. And we say we're liberating women when women are still being brought into the same kind of trash, being used just as much as objects today as they've ever been used. This society has not liberated women. Women. This society is not treating women any better than any other society has treated women. Women are still being treated as sex objects all around the world and in our own society more so than ever. Our society is not a women liberated society and it's not going to help that we give them higher paychecks and it's not going to help that we make sure that there's a certain number of women hired as opposed to men and it's not going to help that we tell women they can do certain things that used to be only for men, because that's not what it is, that's not liberation. It's really not. That's simply a woman going outside of her God-given role. Liberation for women came when Paul taught that women are to be honored as unto the weaker vessel. That was a startling, excuse me, Peter, that was a startling thing for Peter to write in a culture where women were objects to be bought and sold. Liberation came in the Old Testament under the law, when if a man forced a woman, he was then required to marry her, instead of just throwing her aside, like all the other cultures allowed. That is liberation. Because the women are now no longer just treated as objects for a man's pleasure. In Christianity, as in Judaism before, women were elevated to the status of human beings and treated like human beings. And never has there been a time in our culture where women were more liberated than the time when our culture was so engrossed in Christian culture that the men treated them with honor. Where men held the doors for women. Where men were expected to provide for women. Where men were expected to treat women with a peculiarity and a honor that's when women were truly liberated from that which society wants them to be, which is slaves to the lusts of men, which we're still seeing today. Consider how Christian culture elevates women. I'm taught by the Bible that women are worthy of honor that I ought to be kind to them, that I ought to respect them, that I ought to treat them above reproach. I'm taught that favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord, she should be praised. you know what that means? That means that as a Christian man, I am not going to go after a woman and encourage her to sell her body to me. I'm not going to go after women and tell them that the only thing that matters is how they look on the outside. All of this stuff that's being preached Today in society where we need to convince women that they're beautiful on the inside is being completely undermined by every element of society. Teach women that they're beautiful on the inside, but what do we show at the Oscars or the Grammys? How much of a big deal are we making out of the beauty of these women? See, society is contradicting itself, but in Christian culture... Where a man pursues a woman not because of how she looks, but because of who she is before God, all of a sudden, a woman has been elevated to the status of looking for a woman of character, not just looking for a woman of looks. And isn't that what we want every single girl in this room? Isn't that how we want them all to think? Don't we want every single young girl in this room to think I need to be a woman of godly character so that I can find a man of godly character who will love me? Don't we want to shield our girls from what society is telling them that they have to be skinny and they have to be beautiful and they have to wear certain things and they have to do certain things to get the attention of men because that's what society does? We don't want our girls to think that way. We don't want... And that's what society is telling them every day. And that's what, and you know this, ladies, that's what you naturally are prone to want to do to get attention. Because that's what society is telling you you need to do to get attention. And what culture is telling women that what's inside is more important than what's outside and then backing it up with the way we live? Only Christianity. Only Christianity. So the young men here treat the women with respect. The young men here aren't trying to manipulate women, aren't trying to get women to sell their bodies, aren't telling women that the only way you can impress me is through what you do physically. The men here are saying, you know what matters to me? how much you love the Lord. You know what matters to me? Your relationship with God. You know what matters to me? Your virtue. That's what matters to me. And when young women see a culture of men who want that, then they have the freedom, they are liberated from the compulsion to use their body as some object to win men. Christianity is liberating to women. So, It's not about that Christianity says women are supposed to be subject to their husbands. That's not slavery. It's obedience. It's not about women can't preach. That's not demeaning and chauvinistic. That's the way God has designed it. Liberation is found in Christianity. but so-called Christian feminists use this reality to springboard their agenda, claiming that the liberation of Christianity and the equalization of all men and women under the gospel demand that every gender distinction be dissolved. It's not what the Bible says. All men and women are spiritually equal in the sight of God. It's true. But that doesn't change the fact that God has biblically ordained roles for each of us. And mother, wife, you have made the choice to be married. That means you have willingly subjected yourself to the biblical role that God has placed in the scriptures. And as Titus chapter 2 tells us, the role that you have subjected yourself unto is of wife and mother. So do it. Do it with every ounce of your ability. Do it to the best of your ability. And I say all this to emphasize this point. Mothers, the home is the primary loyalty of your life. The day you got married, that happened. These things should consume your priorities, particularly in the years when your children are still young. To divide your loyalties among other endeavors is to disobey the commands of Scripture. And as I mentioned, this does not necessarily mean women cannot work at any point. This does not necessarily mean that a woman cannot work. When uh, she's not married, cannot work, perhaps when she's married but not having children yet because she can still completely take care of her home perhaps and take care of her husband and work. Nor does it mean that as her children get older and get out of the house, she cannot take upon herself a job. But those years when she has children, the Scriptures are fairly clear here. Women, you need to devote your priority to them. To pursue a career at the expense of your children is unbiblical. To pursue a career at the expense of your marriage is unbiblical. To pursue personal endeavors at the expense of your family's priorities is unbiblical. Point number two. Mother, live to honor God's word. Second point is really the essence of the scriptural expectation upon mothers, but it never hurts to remind us of how it touches every facet of our lives. Just like everything else in your life, mother, your role as mother, your role in your family is meant to be lived out for God's glory. Verse 5 makes it clear that the degree to which you submit yourself to your God-ordained role in marriage, that you submit yourself as a mother, that you submit yourself as a wife, will directly affect the degree to which you are being a proper testimony of the word of God and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures bear out time and again that the greatest testimony every believer has concerning the truth of God's Word is their obedience to it. So what are we doing today? When we are ignoring things like the biblical commands regarding divorce and the biblical commands concerning motherhood, we're ignoring all of those things and then we're trying somehow to convince a culture that the Word of God matters well, yeah, the Word of God matters, so we're just going to reinterpret this. We're just going to say that it doesn't say what it says it says so that we can do what we want to do and then somehow we expect the world to look at us and say, wow, there's some truth to this. Some truth to what? We're not living it. Right? The best way that any of us can show the Word of God and announce the Word of God to the world is by living the Word of God. And mother, the way in which you live the Word of God as a mother is to be discreet, chaste, keeper at home, good, obedient to your own husband. Because that's how the Word of God is not blasphemed. By being a submissive wife and a loving husband, the married woman in this room exalts the preeminence of the Word of God above human philosophy or culture. So the decision really isn't about what culture says. The decision really isn't about your philosophy or your idealism or female capability. This isn't about whether or not women are capable to work. Women are about whether men are smarter than women or women are smarter than men. That's not what this debate is about in Christianity. The debate is about whether or not you as women and Christians are willing to submit yourself to the Word of God or not. And that will make all the difference that will make all the difference. It's a debate over the authority of Scripture. The same controversy that's raged time and again in every society as the expectation of God's Word conflicts with the desires of culture. Are we going to follow culture or are we going to follow the Bible? That's the question That we ask, are we going to go along with what culture says and we're going to take feminism and we're going to bring it into the church context and we're going to adapt so that women can have this greater role because they feel like they need that? Or are we simply going to obey what the scriptures tell us? And are we going to say, okay women, we love you. You're not lesser than men. You're not less intelligent than men. You're not less capable than men. But look, the Bible says something. And what the Bible says is that you are supposed to be a keeper at home. And what the Bible says is you are supposed to be a husband lover and a child lover. That this is supposed to consume your life. And so ladies, let's be that. Let's do that. And in doing so, let's exalt the Word of God. Now, I know that there are some ladies in this room who... To this point, or perhaps in, in your years of raising your children, didn't know this, didn't do this. This is not a message to make you feel guilty and to make you feel like you did it all wrong and, or anything like that. All throughout our lives, we learn more about the Word of God. And as we learn more about the Word of God, we, we obey it and we assimilate it. Which means your responsibility, if you're no longer a mother with children at home, is to teach it. It's to teach it to others, is to be that woman who is telling the younger women women how they ought to, how the Bible expects them to live. And it's not going to be what culture wants you to say, and it's not even going to be what many in Christian culture want you to say but to the degree that you're willing to take the Word of God at face value, it is what the Bible wants you to say. And so as we learn and we grow, we we stand with the Word of God. Even if we didn't make all the right decisions in our lives, we stand with what the Word of God says as we understand it today. And we teach others to love and to obey the Word of God. And by God's grace... That's what this church is. And that's what this church will continue to be. A group of people that just want to obey and learn the Word of God and be loyal to it. Let's pray.